Informant podcast should not be interpreted as legal advice and are intended for general information purposes only. Hello, and welcome to the third episode in Burr Informant's podcast series discussing labor and employment issues. Glad you decided to tune in and hope we can continue to provide you with helpful information and practical advice to consider as you navigate the challenges 2020 has created for us all. My name is Amy Wilkes, and I'm a partner in Burr Informant's Birmingham office where I focus on counseling employers with respect to all types of human resource matters, including employee hiring, discipline and termination, wage and hour issues, development of personnel policies, discrimination claims, and employee investigations. I also regularly represent and defend employers in a wide variety of individual and class litigation arising under federal and state employment laws. For those of you who are new to Burr Foreman, we are a 100-year-old full-service law firm with 360 attorneys in eight states, 19 offices throughout the Southeast. And we have one of the largest and most experienced labor and employment teams in the region. This podcast series is a continuation of the numerous webinars and articles our labor and employment team has produced over the past few months to help our clients navigate the minefield of ever-changing legal issues that have arisen during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm also joined today by fellow labor and employment attorney, Nina Maya Bergmar, who is an associate in Burn Foreman's Atlanta office. Thanks, Amy. Hello, everyone. As Amy mentioned, I also work in Barn Foreman's Labor and Employment Group. I represent businesses in all types of employment-related lawsuits um, and help them draft policies, contracts, really anything employment-related. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the COVID-19 litigation trends that we've been seeing, the types of potential lawsuits employers may face, and what employers can do to prepare for or avoid litigation. Because as courts and businesses have reopened, we've seen a lot more litigation um, related to COVID-19. Since March, we've already had 549 lawsuits, including 66 class actions being filed against employers. Uh, So we're seeing a significant uptick. So first, let's talk a little bit about how employers are feeling about employees returning to work and potential legal exposure that they may face. Uh, At least in my experience, there seems to be a lot of confusion and uncertainty about employers' obligations under some of these laws, especially um, the new laws that were enacted directly in response to COVID-19, such as the Federal Families First Coronavirus Response Act. Um, I've noticed that employers still have a lot of confusion around what types of leave they're required to give their employees. Um, And this is popping up again now that schools are opening back up um, in hybrid capacities or sometimes um, continuing with remote learning, which has um, resulted in a lot of employees needing to stay home to help their children um, with school and to just take care of their children. What about you, Amy? What have you seen? Yeah, I agree, Nina Maya. You know, from talking to my clients, I also get the sense that employers are worried about things like potential negligence and wrongful death suits and what they should do when employees report safety concerns about COVID-19 in the workplace. Employers I've talked to have a lot of questions about how to comply with frequently changing CDC and, you know, also state and local health department requirements. And, you know, in addition to that, what COVID-related OSHA regulations may be enacted for their particular industry and whether they should institute things like liability waivers and just generally what safety precautions they're required to take with respect to their employees because there's a lot of different information out there. And a lot of my clients' questions also bleed into business concerns because some of the recommended safety precautions 
can become prohibitively expensive for smaller businesses to implement, not to mention how hard it is to get things like cleaning supplies and um, PPE and other things like that. And, you know, looming on the horizon, if and when a vaccine becomes available, there will be, you know, lots of new legal questions about whether employers can require their employees to get those vaccines. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of fear and apprehension of the unknown right now for employers. I think we're all seeing that. In taking a look at this first wave of lawsuits and what we've been seeing, companies such as Walmart and Tyson have been hit with gross negligence and wrongful death lawsuits that you may have heard about. Uh, and this is even though workers' comp is generally the exclusive remedy for these types of claims. So this is a, this is a, a novel issue um, for a lot of us. And in these cases, it's either families that are fighting for compensation because they believe that their deceased loved one contracted COVID or workers who survived COVID and they're suing their employers to cover their medical bills and other damage. So some of these early lawsuits have been filed on behalf of sick workers, um, and they've been focused on whether the employers adhere to the relevant rules for um, protecting employees and customers from COVID-19. As you all know, these uh, rules or guidelines, they're not always mandatory uh, on what employers need to do in terms of safety precautions in the workplace. They've changed um, very frequently. So it's been pretty tough for companies to keep up with what their legal obligations are at a given time, um, especially things like masks, when masks should be worn, uh, and what kind of screening you're allowed to do with your employees. Yeah, that's right. One example of a, a case along these lines that's gotten a lot of media attention, it's a, a lawsuit that was filed against Safeway, the grocery store chain, and it's alleging gross negligence and wrongful death, and it was filed by the wife of an employee who passed away in April due to COVID. Uh, the lawsuit alleges that Safeway required employees uh, to come to work, all employees, including employees who were sick and experiencing COVID symptoms, so they could meet the increased grocery demands uh, that there were back in the spring. Employees complained to their supervisors that the workplace wasn't safe because people were coming to work while they were sick. The lawsuit says that Safeway even posted signs in the workplace that recommended against wearing masks, and also that Safeway failed to follow guidance from OSHA that called for isolating sick workers. Finally, the lawsuit also alleges that Safeway misled workers when it told them that wearing protective equipment such as masks would not help prevent the spread of COVID. Safeway, of course, um, in addition to claiming that workers' comp is the exclusive remedy, as uh, Nina Maya mentioned, they've denied that it failed to take appropriate work sa workplace safety precautions. And they said back in March, neither the CDC nor California health agencies recommended wearing masks. As we all know, that guidance has changed. Um, and the guidance at the time was that masks didn't protect people from COVID. And there are lawsuits similar to this that have been filed against employers all over the country, fueled in part by confusion and frequently changing guidance from the CDC and other agencies in the early stages of the pandemic. So, Amy, other than trying to comply with these ever-changing safety guidelines from CDC and OSHA and other sources, is there anything that employers can do to protect themselves from liability related to the spread of COVID-19? Well, there are several states that have enacted um, liability shield statutes that to some degree make businesses immune from liability related to COVID-19 infections, except in the most egregious of circumstances. Currently, states like Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Iowa, Kansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, Ohio, Oklahoma, Utah, and Wyoming 
all have some kind of liability shield laws in place. But keep in mind that the specifics of these laws are going to differ from state to state in their scope and the degree of protection that they offer. So, you know, companies operating in several different states might be subject to varying requirements across their footprint, which, again, gets confusing. Many lobbying organizations have also called for a federal liability shield statute, and some of you may have read about this in the news, uh, because the Senate Republicans proposed one a few months ago, and it would protect companies from liability for COVID infections beginning in December 2019, as long as the company did not engage in willful misconduct or gross negligence. The proposed liability shield would also cap punitive damages and set a higher burden of proof for plaintiffs, and it would also require uh, lawsuits be filed in federal court, which is much more friendly to uh, businesses than state courts. But at this point, I think it's fair to say there is very little chance of that proposal passing both houses of Congress. So I think that one's probably dead on arrival uh, unless the Democrats and Republicans can agree. Something else employers may want to consider is you know, issuing their own contractual waivers to employees. But there are definitely some major enforceability concerns with those because of what courts consider to be unequal bargaining power between employees and employers. And these types of contractual waivers also cannot protect employers from gross negligence or willful conduct, which is what's been alleged in uh, the lawsuits like against Safeway. It can't protect against workers' compensation claims or OSHA complaints or investigations. Employers also need to keep in mind that a contractual liability waiver for employees who have not yet returned, that might have a practical downside of discouraging those employees from coming back to work. And it may also invite negative publicity from the media and lower employee morale. Something else that's somewhat related to these negligence and wrongful death suits and related liability is the increase we've seen in OSHA retaliation claims. And these types of claims arise where an employee has voiced concern or filed a complaint related to workplace safety. And it could be either that they filed a complaint with OSHA or directly to their employer or to a supervisor. Typically, what we see is that shortly thereafter, for one reason or another, um, the employee is subject to some type of adverse action, which can be a demotion, termination, um, discipline, anything like that. And the employee perceives that adverse action as being related to their uh, complaints. So in other words, they feel like they were retaliated against for voicing concerns about uh, workplace safety. And as you can imagine, OSHA has already been inundated with these type of uh, COVID-19 safety complaints where employees feel like their employers aren't doing enough to protect employees and customers from uh, the spread of COVID-19. And naturally, at least some of these employees are subsequently subject to adverse action because, you know, employees are, there are many employees are subject to adverse action for a variety of reasons, like poor performance or excessive absenteeism or other non-discriminatory and non-retaliatory reasons. But the problem is when it looks like it could be retaliatory because of that, we call it the close temporal proximity, basically that the that the complaint was um, close in time to the adverse action. So we've, we've seen an uptick in those claims as well. And really the biggest thing that an employer can do to protect themselves uh, against this type of liability is what we always tell employers to do, um, namely document. 
document as much as you can if there are performance issues or excessive absences. Make sure that you keep a file on an employee um, before you take disciplinary action so that if you ever have to, you can defend your decision and explain that, you know, this person was terminated because they didn't show up to work and didn't call in, didn't give us any notice whatsoever for a week. Uh, it had nothing to do with any type of protective conduct, such as filing a complaint with OSHA or anything like that. So you always want to keep that in mind um, before you take any kind of adverse action against an employee, more and more so now than ever before. And yeah, Nina Mai, that's that's a good point. Well, in addition to you know the obvious workplace safety concerns and lawsuits we're seeing coming out of that. Um, another, you know, area for employers to, to take caution is lawsuits related to all of the layoffs we know we've been seeing for the past, you know, five or six months related to COVID and, you know, claims that employers have not provided the notice that they are required to under the WARN Act or otherwise known as the Worker Adjustment Retraining Notification Act. Um, and if any of you have any experience with WARN, you know that it's a very complicated statute and uh, rife with danger, even in the best of times. And in these uh, COVID times, it's even more dangerous. So for those of you who aren't familiar with WARN, it generally requires businesses with over 100 employees who lay off 50 or more workers at the same time to provide laid off workers with a 60-day advance notice. Now, we all know, you know, with COVID, um, when that struck, you know, maybe you didn't have 60 days advance notice um, before you needed to lay people off. Well, the good news is there's an unforeseeable business circumstances exception to the 60-day notice requirement, um, which would apply to closings and layoffs that were caused by business circumstances that were not reasonably foreseeable at the time that 60-day notice would have been required. Sounds perfect for COVID, right? Well, um, although the courts haven't settled this question yet of whether that exception applies to COVID, there's definitely an argument that COVID constitutes such unforeseeable circumstances. I think, you know, like I said, given the large number of layoffs that have occurred nationwide, the number of Warren Act cases that are filed are certainly going to be increasing in the coming months. As the pandemic lingers on, I think it's going to make it harder for employers to argue that it's an unforeseeable business circumstance going forward. One note is that the Department of Labor has advised that the applicability of the unforeseeable business circumstances exception is going to vary um, from company to company, and it's going to rest on that company's particular business circumstances. So any dispute whether that exception is going to apply is going to likely be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. I think because this is still kind of up in the air, best practices uh, for layoffs are always going to be to give as much advance notice as practical. And, you know, also, if you're going to give less than 60 days notice, in your notice, give a brief statement on the reason why you're giving fewer than 60 days notice, along with the other required elements of the WARN notice. Yeah, I agree. Especially in light of all the uncertainties surrounding the WARN notice requirement, it's always best to just provide a notice as soon as you can and, and protect yourself as much as possible. Another thing that's come up that employers should pay close attention to is disparate treatment, especially in how layoffs are carried out or any kind of adjustment you're making to the workplace um, in an attempt to stop the spread of COVID-19. So we see a lot of employers who have good intentions and they want to protect 
certain employee populations that are more at risk, for example, older workers. But they really need to be careful because we're not, as employers, you're not allowed to treat employees differently based on a protected characteristic, which can be something like age, disability, national origin, um, sex, anything like that. So when you're carrying out COVID-19 protocols or you, you lay off employees, make sure that you're using objective criteria and you're not basing it on those protected characteristics. Even if, if it's with good intentions to protect certain employees, that's not lawful. You're not allowed to do that. An administration of COVID-19 screening protocols is another potential minefield. You really need to make sure that you administer screenings consistently and do it to everyone. Don't just focus on certain groups. Again, we all know that certain groups of people are more vulnerable to COVID-19, um, but in the employment context, we really need to treat everyone the same. I think something that goes along with the discrimination claims are increased claims related to failure to provide the types of leaves that are mandated by the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, the FFCRA, as you mentioned earlier. Um, the FFCRA, of course, applies to companies with more than 500 employees, and it generally provides two types of paid leave to employees affected by COVID-19. Uh, first, uh, employers must provide, covered employers must provide two weeks or up to 80 hours of paid sick leave to employees who are unable to work for certain qualifying reasons related to COVID-19. It could be under a quarantine order or something like that, or you're caring for someone who's under a quarantine order or has COVID-19. Um, there are several different reasons that are laid out in the statute. In addition to the paid sick leave, employers also have to provide expanded FMLA leave of up to 12 weeks to employees who are unable to work because their child's school or daycare is closed as a result of COVID-19. And as Nina Maya mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, that's been a hot topic lately as schools have semi-reopened on rotating schedules and hybrid basis with some virtual and some in-person. So that's uh, certainly an area that's that's got a danger for employers as they try and interpret the statute and what they're required to do under it. Um, FFCRA, like I said, is a complicated statute and imposed new requirements for employers that you know they've never had before. So it's not surprising that as the months have gone on, we've seen an increase in litigation related to failure to provide the required leave. And even where leave is provided, you know, there's still a lot of employers who are getting into trouble for requiring excessive documentation from employees to justify the need for leave or using paid sick leave under the FFCRA to satisfy paid leave entitlements that an employee may have under the employer's own paid leave policy. So Amy, earlier we talked about in the context of um, gross negligence lawsuits or wrongful death lawsuits, um, liability shield statutes and things of that nature. Um, is there anything that employers can do to minimize liability in the context of discrimination, retaliation, failure to provide leave, and these last few things that we've talked about? Yeah, I mean, I think with, you know, with everything in HR, documentation is everything. Employers should make sure that they thoroughly document all of the reasons that an employee is disciplined or subjected to any kind of adverse action or, you know, any sort of employment action and that they can establish why that action was taken um, and why it was legitimate and non-discriminatory and non-retaliatory. You know, as for leave, uh, employers, I think, should carefully examine each employee request for leave 
to determine how that request should be classified, review their specific obligations with respect to the leave request, and determine if you know concurrent use of other leave is appropriate or permissible in that circumstance. And you know, don't assume that you don't have to provide leave just because it is not required under the FFCRA. Employers always need to consider what other company leave policies might be applicable, whether there are any state or local requirements for paid leave or unpaid leave, um, or whether statutes such as the ADA or FMLA would come into play. For example, you know, leave of absence um, could be a reasonable accommodation under the ADA. So just because you think, oh, well, the person's exhausted their FFCRA leave or the FFCRA is not applicable to us because we have too many employees, you need to look outside at other applicable statutes and make sure that you're not, you know, stepping into any holes on that end. Yeah, and to make things even more confusing, um, the different statutes may have different rules for the type of documentation that employers can require from the employee. So you really want to be careful about that too, and that's one of the reasons why you want to um, make sure you know um, how you classify a certain leave at the end of the day, so you know what um, rules govern the documentation that you can request from the employee. So another thing that I would add is probably um, creating some kind of a return to work protocol. Um, so we don't expect employers to totally revamp their employee handbooks, um, especially since a lot of these laws will expire at the end of the year. But you should have a separate document that outlines the steps that the company is taking in response to COVID-19, the types of leave that's available to employees. If employees have to take leave because they're infected, when can they return to work? Or if they were exposed, when can they return to work? Um, if you're doing a screening protocol, for example, if you're taking people's temperature, um, you wanna make sure that you have that uh, screening protocol in writing and you provide that to the employees before they return to work so they feel comfortable and they know what's going on they know the steps that the company is taking that way not only can you ensure consistency if it's written down so that each supervisor and each manager implements this protocol in the same way but it's also a way to make employees feel more comfortable knowing that the employer is taking all these steps to to take care of their employees protect them from COVID-19 and and comply with the relevant COVID-19 laws yeah, those are great points, Nina Maya. And one final area of claims uh, that I want to mention before we wrap up today are wage and hour claims. You know, I, I know a lot of uh, companies, employees that are working remotely, and they're still working remotely, that may be working remotely for the rest of the year or the foreseeable future. And, you know, there can be a lot of wage and hour claims related to that with, you know, employees saying they're working off the clock or they're not being paid correctly for all of the time they've been working times where employees might be on call and might not be paid correctly. I know a lot of people have done salary reductions um, with the economic downturn. So whether you're doing those correctly and not risking an exemption for your salaried employees. And also exempt employees who may be uh, required to perform the majority of non-exempt work, potentially losing the exemption. An example of that would be, you know, in a lot of restaurants, they're coming back with lower capacity. So you might have a manager who was considered exempt under one of the exemptions, um, maybe the executive exemption. Well, if that manager now, because of short staffing, is doing majority non-exempt work, waiting on tables and customers and things like that, 
perhaps that manager isn't exempt anymore because they don't meet the criteria for the executive exemption. So these are issues that, you know, I think can get kind of lost in the shuffle of all the other issues. But the Fair Labor Standards Act is still still there and always around. And there's are, you know, complicated issues with people outside their normal work environment. That employers need to remember, you know, the remote workplace and employees working in new ways. Uh, really creates a lot of potential exposure for wage and hour violations. Yeah, that's a great point, especially the part about losing an exemption. That's something that's not probably the first thing you would think about in, in all the craziness going on right now with COVID-19, but certainly something that could have a huge impact on a company. So I think that wraps up our podcast for today, and uh, we hope you all found this discussion useful. We want to thank you all for tuning in and please be on the lookout for future podcast episodes um, from our labor and employment series. Burr Informant also has a library of podcasts available on other legal topics. This includes our Take 5 Immigration podcast and also our new podcast called the Women's Podcast Series. You can view these podcasts and find other information about our firm at burr.com. That's B-U-R-R dot com. Thank you so much, everyone.